Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Tim Becker. In Conversation features Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. The best projects can come from unexpected places, as Dr. Adrian Finucane has recently discovered. Dr. Finucane was originally aiming to highlight some of the colonial history of the southeastern United States, and she stumbled upon a hidden history of prisoners of war. I don't know. I thought I was going to write a book about Georgia, but these guys just kept showing up <laughs> in the archives. You know how it happens. Dr. Finucane is an associate history professor at FAU and is currently working on two large projects, both highlighting different aspects of colonial America. The first, a book titled Captive Exchanges, looks to cover the history of prisoners of war before international standards were set in stone. The second is a summer seminar with the National Endowment for the Humanities, bringing students and professors from around the country together to study FAU's Marvin and Seibel Weiner Spirit of America collection of Revolutionary-era books. Dr. Finucane is our guest for this edition of In Conversation. She joined Dean Horswell in a virtual meeting in August of 2021. So good afternoon, Dr. Adrian Finucane, and welcome to In Conversation here in the College of Arts and Letters at Florida Atlantic University. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I've been looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I think your your research is fascinating. Um, as our listeners heard in your introduction, um, you, you're a, a historian of, of the Americas, of, of uh, North and South America, and your work really concentrates on the on the Atlantic world, I guess I should say, and it fits so nicely into our college focus on the Americas and this interesting space that we live in here in South Florida, which is a nexus between the Caribbean and uh, North America and South America. So it's just been a pleasure having you on our faculty. I thought it'd be fun to hear how you got interested in the profession of history and became a professor of history. I'm sure our listeners would love to know how you got started. So I grew up in Boston, which is very, very proud of its history. It's a city that's really steeped in sharing that history with visitors. And so I was interested from a very young age in how America was formed and how that history, that very, very long history was developed and is still retained today in a lot of places. And I'll say moving to Florida was exciting because it's a whole different kind of history than exists in the Northeast. And it's a similarly long history that I think is underappreciated, really. It's such a rich cultural place to live. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've visited Boston. You can't, you almost trip over history in Boston, right? Every step you take, you feel like you're, you're, you're stepping through American history. Did you study as an undergrad your history degree? So I did start as an undergrad history major. The field always really grabbed me. The connection that you can make with people through history by by reading their letters, by reading their thoughts, by studying the events that they lived through, it's just a really human thing. And that really caught my imagination. Hmm. And I think you and I share one thing in common in that we we both like the colonial periods of, in my case, Latin America, in your case, uh, North America mainly. And I'll never forget the beautiful lecture you gave a couple of years ago on Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> when Hamilton was all of the craze. So it is just a fascinating period. So we're here today to really talk about some recent exciting research news coming out of your work. So you recently received a very prestigious National Endowment of the Humanities 
summer research stipend, which all of us in the humanities know how hard hard those are to get, and very competitive. And I thought maybe we could start by hearing what you're doing with that stipend, uh, that research support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Yeah, so I was really pleased and honored to receive one of these stipends. It supports two months of research. And what I used mine for was research on my new book, which is called Captive Exchanges, Prisoners of War and the Trade in Secrets from 1700 to 1760. And this is a book that looks at prisoners of war in a period before international law really laid out what was supposed to happen with these kinds of prisoners. So it's after a period where prisoners would just be automatically killed, but it's before a period of international law about treatment of people. And so I'm really interested in this this time of a lot of change in a place where change really matters, right? In those sort of edges of, of empire where the Spanish and British empires are coming together. Oh, that is a fascinating topic. So are you looking at the prisoners that were being taken and then exchanged between the British and the Spanish empires exclusively, or do you bring in others? So my main focus is the sort of British-Spanish relationship, but Britain and Spain were only able to hold power in the American Southeast because of, for instance, uh, relationships and, and, and alliances with Native people. And so I'm also in this book looking at how native traditions of captive taking, which are very, very different from European traditions, are interfacing with European needs and and actually evolving over time. So we see native people not doing the traditional thing of, uh, for instance, the Creeks taking captives and then either killing them or, or integrating them into the community, what you have is them adapting to meet the needs of their British allies and actually bringing prisoners to them. And those prisoners then giving up a whole bunch of really juicy military information. Wow, that's fascinating. So maybe we could talk a little more about that, that kind of comparative look at captive economies between the Native Americans and the British and the Spanish. Could you talk a little bit more about that contrast? Yes. So Native people, as I said, had this long tradition of what it meant to take captives. And they never traditionally took captives, we're talking about the Creeks and the Chickasaws and others, in in large numbers. So there was no sort of benefit to holding large numbers of people. It's very logistically difficult. You have to feed them, you have to guard them. It just wasn't part of the culture. But once the Europeans come in, we have all these letters from different European military leaders sort of bragging to their higher ups that they have prohibited their native allies from killing anyone or or burning them and in fact they are they're forcing them to treat prisoners in a way that they code in terms of european values as more humane fascinating and for the british it was important to have those captives for intelligence purposes i, I think you mentioned Yes. So part of what's really interesting about captivity in this place and this time is that these military leaders, sometimes coming directly from Europe and sometimes from the colonies, uh, and I'm looking mostly at sort of conflict between St. Augustine in Spanish Florida and Georgia and the Carolinas, which are British, they don't have a huge amount of information. These military leaders are coming in and they have very little information about the places that they're planning to attack. And so prisoners that are going back and forth, both Spanish prisoners that the British take and British prisoners who were among the Spanish but then are returned, they're really key vectors of information 
about what's happening in these colonial cities. And the same way going back, Spanish prisoners who are held by the British are then returning uh, and bringing back information. And part of the reason they can do this is that I talked about there's not a lot of codification. There's not a lot of systematic sort of treatment of prisoners of war. They'll take prisoners of war and they'll just parole them. And parole means they're essentially let free in a colonial city, like Charlestown, say, uh, in South Carolina. And they're allowed to wander around and talk to people and gather information. And then they go back home and they have all of this uh, very detailed information about what the enemy is going to do. Wow, that's fascinating. And so I think you talk about it at some point in this in this new book that we're really looking at a, a multicultural society uh, in these colonial towns that are almost on the borderlands in some ways, I guess. And so th- this kind of mixing that's going on in the in the cities that and I, I'd never imagined that the captives could be left let free like that. That's very fascinating. And but I also imagine that it creates an interesting social milieu when you think about the different you know, crossings of empire and, and their captives and former captives, etc. One of the things that has always really interested me about this place in this period, and so the, the southeast of what becomes the United States and the Caribbean, is that you do have this intense mixing of people. We think of the British and the Spanish empires as separate things, right, with different goals and, and different players. But if you look at the edge of an empire, everything is very messy. Everything is very mixed up together. And so you have British people going down and living a long time in Spanish cities because they're supplying them with flour, say. You have enslaved people who are moving back and forth across these borders in search of their own freedom. And you have native people who sometimes in the diplomatic correspondence sort of fall away. But then when you look at the military events that happened, they make up such a big part of the forces that are fighting on both sides. And so this is a really rich and complex area. And I think that can get lost if we think of the British and Spanish empires as separate spheres. Hmm. That, that's a, a great point. And it sounds like your, your book's going to really uh, kind of rewrite the history, or at least what we commonly think of the history of this whole Southeast region. I hope so. <laughs> that's exciting. So let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned earlier that you, you're reading um, letters being exchanged between um, military officers. What other sources have you found in your archival research to, to write this history? So the archival research for this is complex. There isn't at this point, because it's not all codified, in the colonies, one sort of collection of material for this. And so it is a lot of reading of uh, letters that are going back and forth between not only military, but other colonial officials and London and Madrid talking about usually how poorly supplied they are, usually how much they need money to be sent if they're going to be expected to hold on to these prisoners. Because prisoners, again, cost a lot of money to hold on to, both to guard and to feed. In addition, there are some official records in in Britain and some Spanish prisoners, by which I mean prisoners who were originally from the Spanish Empire who were taken by the uh, by the British, are 
ending up in Britain, and some British prisoners are ending up in Spain for long periods of time, sometimes years. Uh, and so sometimes there are records about those people as well. And then there are a lot of documents, particularly coming out of South Carolina, in which people who had been held by the Spanish are brought back into the British Empire and then questioned pretty intensely about what they saw, what they did, who was there, uh, and what might be expected in the next year or so in terms of military action. So uh, it, it is a process that produces a lot of documentation, but that documentation is scattered. Mm. That's, that's really a fascinating puzzle you're putting together, which is what I love about uh, history and any kind of colonial kind of archival work is you never know what you're going to find. And then you, it takes you in interesting directions, what you do find. I was curious. So your your book, the title of your book signals that you're looking at 1700 to 1760, I believe. Does something change after 1760 that set that kind of end date for your study? Uh, and if so, what, what's, what's the evolution like? Yeah, so the end date for this book is defined sort of by the, the middle of uh, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. And it's during that period that things do get a lot more codified, that uh, Britain, during the Seven Years' War, holds huge numbers of French prisoners for the first time in Britain, and they hold them from when they're captured to the very end of the war. And so in order to do that, they have to create this bureaucracy to deal with what that, what that looks like. What I'm interested in is before that bureaucracy fully exists, before, for instance, they create a system in which prisoners of war are clearly the responsibility of the state in a central manner, as opposed to the responsibility of local colonial governors, what do local colonial governors do? And what they do is they let people wander around and, and collect information, and they do all of this individual negotiating. So there's all of this individual negotiating between, say, the governor of South Carolina and the governor of Havana about, you know, how can I get these prisoners off of my books so I don't have to deal with them anymore? And how can I get those British prisoners that you've taken back, you know, into our empire? And so, again, while we think of these as centrally organized empires individual governors on the ground are really being very pragmatic and scrambling for solutions. Mm, interesting. I know, uh, and I've studied a little bit in the earlier periods, especially in the Mediterranean world, there was the practice of having captives and then ransoming them back to the their home country. And so there was a way to raise monies you know, through those ransoms. And I'm wondering, does that go on in the colonial Americas also? Uh, so ransoming does happen in the colonial Americas. It's actually one of the big things that happens in terms of Native American captivity, especially in the northern parts of uh, North America. Um, part of the reason that Native people take captives in the 16th, 17th century, 18th century, is that they can ransom those people for for money. By the time we get to this period, and I'm looking especially at the War of Jenkins' Ear that starts in 1739, uh, where there are just a lot of captives being taken by privateers and, and on land, there are some people who think that ransoming is very important in terms of like, it needs to be a one-to-one -one exchange. You give me one prisoner, I give you one prisoner. And there are all of these calculations about, you know, how much is a is a pilot worth versus just a regular sailor? How much is... Uh, just a, a foot soldier worth versus a captain. But what actually happens in a lot of cases is that the governors stop caring about that and they just want to get rid of prisoners. 
they just don't want to have to deal with the logistics of taking care of prisoners anymore. And so they will send them back uh, with vague promises that in the future, if some of their people are taken, that those will be returned as well. Hmm. Wow, that's a fascinating history there. So we're going to transition now to another project you're working on. But before we leave this one, is there a major takeaway you're expecting from your study that will really influence uh, how we understand this period? So one of the big takeaways that's also a commonality between this project and a previous project I've done, I think, is understanding that these empires are really closely linked to each other, that people move between them more commonly than we might expect, and that really we need to look that at, at this region, the American Southeast and the Caribbean, as a place of, of intermeshed empires, of empires that were reliant on each other, of sort of on the ground situations that were way more complex than they look like if you just look at a map of who controls what. Wow. That's exciting. I can't wait for your book to come out. And do we have a projection when it might be completed? It's been delayed a little bit because I was not able to get into the Spanish and and UK archives this past summer. So it's Mm -hmm. been pushed a little bit, but in the next couple of years, we should expect it out. Oh, great. Well, we all look forward to that. So let's pivot now and talk about another National Endowment of the Humanities grant that you've just recently received. And uh, it's very, very exciting. It's for uh, NEH Institute. And I see the title of the Institute is The Revolution in Books. And so for our listeners, um, uh, uh, NEH Institute is one of the more prestigious uh, awards that they provide and are very impactful both on the home institution as well as on scholarship that will come out of that institute. So could you tell us more about this wonderful news? Absolutely. So this is a project that I've been working on with Victoria Thur from the libraries. It's something that the libraries and the history department are working on together. When we talk about the American Revolution, we talk about ideas a lot, ideas like liberty and freedom. And what we want to get to in this institute is how people actually physically interacted with those ideas in print objects. So these ideas weren't just produced by authors and sort of blasted out into the world. They're the combined work of authors and printers, some of whom were enslaved, um, various laborers who all were all involved in creating these objects through their intellectual and their physical labor. And so we want people to be able to connect with the physical object of the book from the period of the revolution and think about how people interacted with these objects and and thought about these objects and received this information in the past. Because we have the amazing Spirit of America collection here at FAU, we're able to actually share with people physical objects that were printed during the revolutionary period. And so we can help people think about how to teach book history with their in their own classrooms by helping them to interface with these objects. Well, that's very exciting. And I know um, our fabulous uh, Weiner Spirit of America collections will be uh, on showcase during this institute. And, and I understand that people will be able to work in that uh, special collections in the Wimbledon Library. And also, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to be actually putting all the participants to work on a historic printing press so they get to experience that physicality themselves. Is that right? Absolutely. So the idea of this institute is it's history plus theory plus practice. So we have the benefit at FAU of having the Jaffe Center for Book Arts, which contains printing presses. And so we can 
have the participants practice making paper and actually physically printing and thinking about how this is a, an act of labor that's additional to the, the sort of writing down of ideas. And then we have the Marvin and Sybil Weiner Spirit of America collection. We have these 13,000 amazing items, many of them produced in the revolutionary period. And we can have people interact with those and think about what do they look like? How did people actually receive this information? And then how can that be communicated to the wider public and to students? Mm, that's so exciting. And when will the Institute take place? This is going to happen in June of 2022. So for three weeks, we'll have 25 different scholars from across the country come together and learn about these things. And we're bringing in about eight participants from other universities who have specializations in the revolutionary era and, and printing to enrich this discussion. Wow, that sounds exciting. I can't wait. <laughs> I have to say, uh, you and, of course, the Department of History have done a fabulous job working with the library, especially the library special collections, and our wonderful uh, assistant dean, Victoria Thur. And it's, it's just so neat the way you've brought that whole time period to life through the exhibitions over the years that you've helped curate and, and, and publicize uh, from that, those special collections, especially the Weiner collection. Okay, thank you, Dr. Adrian Finucan, for joining me in conversation this afternoon. Thank you. This was a great discussion. You've been listening to Dr. Adrian Finucan and Dean Michael Horswell of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters in conversation. They were recorded in August of 2021. In Conversation is a production of FAU's School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. I'm Tim Becker. All of us thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation. Follow us on Instagram at ALInConversation or email us at icpodcast at fau.edu. We would love to hear from you. And listen for In Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.